Welcome everyone to Creating a Family, talk about infertility. Today we're going to be talking about disclosing donor conception or surrogacy to our kids. Uh, For those of you who have listened to this show for a while, you will know this is a topic that I have a great deal of interest in, so I am really looking forward to talking with Dr. Patricia Hirschberger. She is an associate professor at the College of Nursing and an affiliate professor at the College of Medicine, Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Illinois in Chicago. Welcome, Dr. Hirschberger, to Creating a Family. I'm delighted to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. You have done some really interesting research on disclosing of donor conception. And it is, uh, it's fascinating. I am so thankful that I know there are others who are doing it and, and a number that we, Dr. Golenbach, uh, we've interviewed. And so there's a number that we've interviewed, but I am so thankful to be reading research in this topic because I think it's important. So let's jump in. How common, we're going to start with kind of laying the groundwork here. How common is donor conception in the U.S.? And then it also I'm curious to compare that to other countries, but let's start with the U.S. Yeah, thank you so much for that question. So as you may know, and your listeners may know, Don, the exact estimates about the numbers of children born, or I should say the exact numbers of uh, the children born following gametes, such as egg and sperm, and embryo donation or embryo do- adoption are really difficult to obtain. They are hard. (laughs) Yeah, I did do some digging around and I did uh, find out that the International Committee for Monitoring Assisted uh, Reproduction, and this is an international committee, published some data in 2018 about the number of cycles that were performed for egg donation, which were just over 65,000, and for sperm donation, which they published uh, was over about or close to 45,000. However, I do want to say that 45,000 number, when you look at the report they put out, it did not include sperm donation from right. states, which is a really challenging data to get. Mm-hmm. We are able to get here in the U.S. more accurate estimates about our egg donation and our embryo donation or embryo adoption numbers, because those numbers are have been requested actually by the Centers for Disease Control here in the U.S., and they request fertility clinics to report that data. Um, And we've been doing that for a while. There are even some flaws with that. For example, not all of the fertility clinics in the U.S. will report their data to the CDC. The vast majority do. I'm so grateful for that. But we still have some limitations in looking at how many numbers how many babies are actually born from these procedures? Yeah, and and I, I, I was curious about the numbers you gave at the beginning. You said, were they international numbers or U.S. numbers? They were international numbers, especially for egg donation. But the sperm donation numbers, that about 45,000, that does not include the U.S. data. Because again, sperm donation data is not required to be recorded as egg donation and embryo donation, embryo adoption are. So we know less. In fact, now we did have, that said, there is a caveat. So back in, um, I think it was 1988, there was a study put out by the, at, at that time, the U.S. Congress and Office of Technology Assessment. 
and they gathered data on sperm donation. Again, this is 1988, and they found that there were about 30,000 children that were born from sperm donation at that point in time. So since 1988, we haven't really had a good assessment on uh, sperm donation in the U.S. It's interesting, isn't it? It's As people who are interested in research, it's always a little frustrating to have so little data. And as I understand it, egg, and I don't know, I don't know the data on sperm donation, but egg donation is significantly more common in the U.S. Is that true? Well, again, I wouldn't say that necessarily. We do know that individuals who are choosing to use donor egg, donor sperm, even embryo adoption, um, embryo donation, those numbers seem to be rising really worldwide and in the U.S. But if you think about it too, Dawn, sperm donation, is a, it's not quite as medically involved sure. as is egg donation. So egg donation, there is um, treatments that both the, the egg donor as well as the recipient a woman has to undergo. So it's a little bit more involved procedure as is embryo donation. And when I say embryo donation, I'm including those uh, families that use embryo adoption as well. Yeah, we use the term embryo donation. Right. Mm-hmm. Two different models, be it a medical model or an adoption model, but embryo donation is the term. Yeah, but I don't particularly care. Yeah, so it's interesting. I, I would agree with everything you're saying, and it certainly is on the rise. Now, let's move to talk about the telling uh, part, which is what we really want to focus on, the telling right. of the child, the disclosing of the child's. So what percentage of parents, and, and let's, I'm going to start by saying heterosexual couples, so where there is a, 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 a man and a woman involved, tell their child of their donor conception. And I would, and I'm including at this point, egg, sperm, and embryo. You know, and, and I should preface this by saying, this is probably one of the challenges for parents listening in is, you know, you, I think you're talking to a researcher. So when you talk to a researcher, I have to look at those studies that have been done about what do we know about parents who are telling and what are some of these factors that also influence telling and not telling. And also what we find, even when we do the research, if the research is done at one point in time, for example, I think you had mentioned to me, I think before we went on the air, some of the work that uh, Linda Applegard has done um, over at New York, some fabulous work, some of the best work we have in the country. She actually went out and um, tried to um, encourage families that use egg donation to be involved in her study. I think the study was published in 2016. And what she found out of those families, only about 46% of the families that had used egg donation um, that participated in that study had told their children. Now, what we don't know is that there are likely families who have not told that did not want to be involved in that study. So that number that Linda reported at 46%, which is accurate for the families that were participating. But when we look nationally, it's probably less than that. If it's okay, if I could just share quickly My team and I here at the University of Illinois actually did one of the very few longitudinal studies here in the U.S. And we looked at also egg donation uh, 
parents at pregnancy and their thoughts about telling or not telling their children. And many of our participant families at pregnancy were wanting to tell their children and were you know, excited about it. Then I would say just a few years ago, we re-interviewed those families when their children were right around age 10. Now, granted, this was a small sample size and all the parents were here or, or had their pregnancies here in, in the Chicagoland area. But what we saw in that longitudinal study is that many families that wanted to tell, even by the time that their children were age 10, had in fact not disclosed. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 the number was as high as 86%. Again, the sample size was small, but it's, I think it's a better indicator because we did follow parents from pregnancy through that 10-year period, as opposed to just looking kind of at a cross-sectional sample and getting parents at one point in time. You know, that's such an interesting point. And what you said about Dr. Applegar's research, and as well as others, it, it, it the people who are not telling are often also, I don't know this, I'm guessing, actually, I would think, they might also be less likely to want to participate in any of the studies. Because one of the things that I've seen over the years, the 14, 15 years we've been involved in this, is it does feel, and I there, I do not have research to support this, this is just anecdotal, but it, it feels like at the beginning, there was zero interest in telling for most, and, and in fact, many of the professionals were, why would you do that? That is dumb. Don't tell. Of course you shouldn't tell. I had an interesting conversation with a head of a, a, a well-known, uh, a prominent male fertility specialist who was also involved with a sperm bank. And he was like, I think that's the most ridiculous thing in the world. Why in the world would you tell? You know, you're just totally dismissive. And so I that so we've come to the point now where it feels like that families think are they think that it's the right thing to do to tell. So in a way, it's like I feel like that's progress. It's like we're giving they give lip service, perhaps, and that may be a little dismissive, but they're they at least acknowledge the benefits of, and we're going to talk later why that might be. It may be because we have been successful. At, at trying to help understand some of the ramifications for not telling or for late discovery. But it also could be because of the uh, boom in over-the-counter genetic testing and the realization that they can't keep it a secret. So any, either way, people are at least acknowledging, but it feels like that studies such as yours, as well as others, indicate that in fact, while they say they're going to, in fact, they don't up to a certain age. Uh, is that would that be a fair assessment again from yes. an anecdotal uh, view? Yes, I mean our the research evidence that we have out there today really confirms, Don, what you're saying and observing. You know, as you're talking with parents, uh, yes, many parents I think have that those good intentions. You know, and some parents are able to follow through and and talk and tell with their children, no problem at all. And and kudos kudos to those parents. Other parents, we definitely see they're wanting to tell, but they're struggling with telling, really wondering how that process should unfold. And then we also know, um, and even in my research would confirm that there are some parents that really don't want to tell. Yeah. Know that at pregnancy, they're consistent with that. Um, And we can talk later about some of the reasons, but 
also see that as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I would throw out a, a fourth category, which is kind of a subcategory of one yeah. of yours, and that is they think they should tell, but they don't really, they're not committed to it. <laughs> they they should. I mean, they've at least acknowledged that perhaps that they should, but so it just the, yeah, the yeah. following. Okay, do you see a difference between, because we're talking about dotor gametes or dotor embryo. Do you see a difference between parents who conceive with donor sperm, with donor egg, or with donor embryo? Is there a difference in willingness to discuss, to not discuss, to disclose? You know what? I have to acknowledge at some of the work that's coming out of Europe because they have done, they seem to be a little bit more ahead with their body of research than we do, than we are here in the United States. And hopefully my team and I and others will, will, will bridge that gap. <laughs> I'm rooting for you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. But what, yes, we, there are some studies that are coming out that are kind of comparing uh, different groups. And we're definitely seeing uh, that our, our, our sperm donation parents uh, struggle telling our egg donation recipient parents um, seem to seem to have the best ability to tell overall. Um, and our embryo donation, embryo adoption parents, they also seem to have a very hard time too. Now there are some caveats with because we also, as you know, Don, we also see um, increasingly our LGBTQ plus population are using donor gametes, increasingly so. And those families, although many of them um, who I've been talking with as part of my current research, um, are wanting to know kind of what, how, how are the best ways to tell. But those families seem to have a little bit easier time um, talking and with their children about how they were conceived as opposed to other families. And that makes common sense to me. Mm-hmm. With two guys or two women, as soon as the kids are old enough to understand that there needs to be a sperm or an egg, it's going to, it's going to be a discussion. So that seems, that seems very, and that also fits well with what we see. I mean, it really, mm-hmm. does. I mean, it, so that's, it does, we don't really see a great deal of hesitancy with them. I have to admit, I am, I, I wasn't aware and I'm surprised by that donor eggs, families that are created through donor egg are more willing to disclose than donor embryo. That's really interesting to me because I would have thought with donor egg, it is only one parent has a genetic connection and, and another parent does not, the mother does not, obviously the father does. I mean, if they, if it's not just a double, double donation, in this case, we're not talking about that. So the, so there's a genetic inequivalency, unequivalency, what's the word there? Unequivalency. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so the, because of that, that there's the, I would have thought there would have been less, there would be a feeling of, of they, the, the child will not be as much mine. And so that, that unequalness would have prevented, would be a added thing. Whereas with embryo donation, neither parent has a genetic connection. So I don't know. That's just really interesting to me. I, I thought that too. And there hasn't really been a deep dive into, to really tease out some of those differences. So we could kind of, you know, just speculate as to why that may be the case. Right. It's, you know, the other thing I'm really, I'm, I'm fascinated by that. The other thing that surprises me is that it seems to me that uh, I don't know the percentage, but a fairly high percentage of donor embryos come through 
adoption-based programs. And mm-hmm. as a result, they're being encouraged right. to disclose. So anyway, either way, it doesn't matter. I think that's interesting. That is very interesting. How about the difference in willingness to discuss surrogacy with children? Now, surrogacy, I think people know this, but they're generally speaking, they, they, it is the genetic child fetus of the embryo of the, the parents being transferred to a surrogate and then so that the surrogate does not have a genetic connection? Oh, that's a, that's a great question. And interestingly, when we do look at the different types of donation that are available, such as the sperm, egg, embryo, and then our parents who are using surrogacy, we actually see that the parents who use surrogacy are the most likely to tell. That makes sense to right. me. Or, right, they're likely to tell their children about, right, about the surrogacy. Mm-hmm. If, in, if for nothing else, it's an easier story to tell. Mm-hmm. Mommy and daddy needed help. They needed a, a mommy, you know, mommy's tummy or wombed or whatever they're going to use uh, was mm-hmm. broken. We, uh, this kind lady, you know, it's, it's an easier story with which to tell. You don't have to get into the genetics or anything like that. So, yes, yeah, so it's a, a, an easier story. Okay, so interesting. As you were thinking about the information that Dr. Hirschberger is sharing today on disclosing donor conception, please do us a favor and share with your friends about this podcast. Most people know about podcasts and find out about new podcasts through their friends. So if you have someone who is infertile or who has conceived through donor conception or is considering conceiving through donor conception, please share about the creatingafamily.org podcast. So your research, as well as others, I'm summarizing here, is indicating that parents may well say they're going to tell in the child's either during pregnancy or young uh, during infancy, but that a surprising or a higher percentage actually don't tell when you go back and check with them at age five or age 10 or age 15. Is, is that what the research is indicating? Yeah, definitely here in the U.S., Right. We're seeing that now. I mean, worldwide, there may be some differences because we know certain things. For example, um, in the United Kingdom, there are actually mandates where the government is really mandating that you know parents tell and they're trying to put different pieces of legislation in place to really promote the telling to parents. Where here in the U.S., um, we don't really have these kind of governmental mandates or legislation that really encourages that telling. And it's, it's more left to the individual parents. That said, we do have guidelines that come out, for example, from the American Society for Reproductive Medicine, mm-hmm. 2004, and then again in their guidelines from 2018, have really um, encouraged uh, parents to tell and encouraged the professionals such as myself to, to you know, to help parents with that telling process. That's a great segue into the question of, do, do you feel like, as, for, as a professional in the field, do you see that there is a fairly broad consensus of the professionals, both medical, for mental health, I would assume there is, but let's, let's talk medical then, on whether children, that, that children should be told? I think we, I, I'd like to think, I should say, and again, I don't have really data, hard data to back this up because we haven't had a survey 
to really look at what uh, clinicians are doing out in the field. But I would like to think, as you stated earlier, Don, that there does seem to be a movement for uh, clinicians to really encourage uh, parents to tell. And that's really where my work being a nurse, nurse practitioner really comes into play because I see my role as someone who really does a lot of education. Mm-hmm. I think that's why I'm so, one of the reasons I should say, I'm so interested in this population of parents and donor conceived families and really trying to help parents. If parents are saying, for example, um, in, the, in the study my team and I did, the longitudinal study, that they're really still struggling with telling, even though they know they should be telling, because they're wondering how to tell, when to tell, what does that process look like? Hopefully, research that my team and I are doing, and then the education, such as the programs, are really helping parents understand ways to tell and strategies and really kind of demystify the process, even normalize it. Exactly what it is, by normalizing it and taking some of the fear, the fear base out of it. Yeah, I I agree, and I I agree with you that nurses play a unique role in this because of their relationship with infertility nurses in specific, because of their relationship Mm -hmm. with the patients and their ability and their time to be able to help do more education. Do you think that the, uh, I've already stated my opinion, I think, or or implied, do you think that the impact of over-the-counter genetic testing on parents' willingness to, is impacting parents' willingness to disclose conception? Definitely. You know, I I think I see that just anecdotally talking with parents. Um, In fact, even talking with some of my colleagues in their clinical practices, some of them are even seeing parents come back and want to talk with the psychologist on staff or the counselor on staff, even the physician on staff, or perhaps the nurses, if they underwent gamete donation or embryo donation 10 or so years ago, maybe received different type of counseling at that point. But now understand all of the issues going on in genetics and what's happening with direct-to-consumer genetic testing, as well as places like Ancestry.com. And then, you know, seeking out medical advice or counseling advice for how to best tell their children, even if their children are a little bit old. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, and the other thing that, the the other way, even without genetic testing, before genetic testing, because I think a lot Mm -hmm. of people are doing it, genetic studies in school, which start in middle school. And the thing that when we have interviewed donor-conceived adults who have found out later in life or didn't find out through their parents or found out later in life. They they will often talk about a a number of things, but one of them is, you know, when they came back and, and were doing the, you know, the tongue roll and doing, you know, recessive, doing the, uh, the, the, the the basic genetic studies, doing uh, the tongue rolling and the eye color and things like that. And talking about, which of course is in high school, but also in middle in middle school as well, talking about it with their parents, it put their parents in a position to either tell outright lies or lies of omission. And, and the donor-conceived individuals remembered that. And I think parents don't think that through, that it's not a matter of just not telling. It will soon become a matter of lying, whether it's outright or a lie of omission. And, and 
And there's so many ways and the donor conceived adults who have found out are going back thinking, you know, when I ask where, you know, why, you know, my hair is curly and, and you told me something else. And it's that it's that betrayal and that feeling, if you lied about this, what else did you lie about? And, and I trusted you. And that's what parents, I don't think, think about. I mean, then of course the over the counter genetic test will be even more explicit. Or, or they think about it, I think, and they're just, it, they're still, something's preventing them from sharing that information with their children. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah, that's a great, what are the reasons that you feel like, or for, not you feel like you've done the research? What are the reasons parents give for not telling their child? Right. And thank you so much for asking that. I'd love to talk about that because much of my research up until the last several years was really looking at trying to understand uh, some of the challenges that parents were facing telling, as well as parents that were telling, how come that was working so well for them. But some of the things just quickly for families, I think a big piece, especially for infertile couples, is that many of them are struggling with that grief of infertility and that loss, I think, of that kind of biological envision. Mm-hmm. And they work so hard. Many of them spent years in infertility treatment. I think grief, even though they have been successful using donated gamete or donated embryo, I think that's still part of that. And I think their their child or their children in many cases is so wanted that that parent is almost it's almost as if that parent just can't take any more sadness if that child would say something like, well, you're really not my mom then, are you? Mm-hmm. You know, I think it's just, you know, some many parents uh, have to really work with that grief and try to overcome that and come to the point where, you know, I am this child's parent, no matter how they came to be, you know, I am the parent that's taking care of them. So I think that's, one of the reasons, I think there also are other reasons, for example, especially in parent families, sometimes the parents disagree. And I think that can also be very challenging. One parent may want to tell, the other parent doesn't want to tell. Oftentimes it is the parent that had the, you know, the sperm or egg that was unable to establish the embryo. So, um, so we see that. And I think for two parent families, that can also be challenging. There are also Lots of other factors, some contextual factors, such as um, a person's culture. If your family tends to be very open, for example, and you talk about many things up and down the generations, I think it's a little bit easier for those families versus families that are in certain cultures where using a donor sperm or a donor egg is taboo and things of that nature aren't discussed. And now we're asking these parents to talk to their children and tell them how they were conceived. I think those um, also create some challenges for families as well as, as some examples. Does that help answer your question, uh, Don? Yeah, it absolutely does. Okay, so you've, we've talked about the motivation for or the, the factors for parents who are not, the reasons that parents are giving for not telling. Have you talked with parents who did tell, what motivated them? That would be kind of another way to come at the question. Right. Uh, yeah, thank you for asking. So, right, so parents that do tell, you know, many of them, for example, they'll say things like, 
you know, our, my family's always open. I always wanted to be open. We've told a lot of people. And so we're following through on that. What we also see when you do like a deeper dive is they may say things that something in their background also prompted them to want to, to really want to tell their children. For example, a parent once shared with me that when he was like 16 or 17 years old, he um, had a friend who found out they were adopted and this caused a, a lot of trauma for them finding that out, uh, you know, when they were a teenager. So from him, from his living that experience, then when he and his partner used donor gametes, it was, it seemed much easier for him to tell. And he had already told his children who were like six years old, but pretty much from birth. I also hear that similar story in other parents that have told something perhaps in their background. Maybe there was a secret that was kept in, in their family and, and, and that was found out and, and caused some family dynamics that ended up uh, in, in a negative way. And then it really seems to push those parents to tell. There's also, I do want to add, just getting back to your point earlier about genetics, I think everything going on in genetics, and part of my background, I was able to do some genetic training at the NIH for a while. So just thinking about treatments that are using genetics, individuals are finding more and more about genetics. So I do hear from parents as well that they really are thinking about like the health of their child and when their child receives care from the pediatrician or from uh, pediatric nurse practitioners, they want to be sure that their, their children are receiving the best care possible. So that can also push parents toward telling, as well as I think what you'll see in many of the research studies, that many parents feel like secrets are bad for families, kind of this moral judgment that parents make. And that also seems to push parents toward telling and disclosing. And the secrets, uh, again, from the analogy in, to adoption, what we have found through adoption is that if one person in the family, if, if, any, if you have told anyone other than your, the, the partner, if you have one, with every person, this is information that will be shared. It just will be. It's possible if you've just told one person that it won't be, but otherwise people are going to know. So if you've told somebody, then people, somebody, the people who don't have a direct interest in this know and your child doesn't. And you up the chances for your child finding out from someone else, right? The research has found that there are uh, two general approaches behind when to tell children about their conception through donor sperm, egg, or embryo. And I think that I would assume that this is not, I would assume that mental health professionals would not be the ones who would be saying that, that either, well, they would not be saying that that one of these approaches is the correct way. But I assume this is from when you talk with parents, they're telling you that they're when they're trying to figure out when to tell, there is the seed planting and the right time. So explain the difference between those two. Right. So this, real, this work, I want to say, came out of the U.S. It was really a seminal study. It was published in 2007 in Fertility and Sterility, which is the Journal of the Association 
American Society of Reproductive Yes, yes, I'm going to say right. Yes, thank you so much. So, yes, and this uh, was looking at families, kind of how they dispose. And for some parents, they would say things like, I want to tell early because I want to plant like this little seed and kind of build on that seed as uh, the, the child grows. Other parents also were telling or wanting to tell said, well, you know what? I'm going to wait until my child can like understand the information. So this is kind of the right time parents. They identify some sort of a right time, be it their child can understand the information, you know, when their child is age X, Y, Z, but they have this identified kind of time period that they feel that would be right to tell their child. Um, So that kind of is out of some of the work in the U.S. actually, I think Kirsten McDougall uh, led that analysis on that work, Mm -hmm. Um, came up with this kind of the seed planting option versus the right time planting option. So what is the average age that parents tell their child, if assuming they do tell, about conception via donor gamete or embryo? Well, looking at Linda Applegar's work, which is one of the predominant studies we have that examine that, she found that about age seven or eight, I think, here in the U.S. is about when parents tell, although that work from uh, Dr. Applegart was published in 2016. And as you pointed out and what I'm seeing, I think there is a shift towards parents telling. And I think many parents that go through infertility treatments and fertility treatments today and in the last even five years are more apt to tell. It just seems to be that this space is opening up. Now they're still wanting to know how to do it. Mm -hmm. I think that age would be lower, right, than seven or eight if that study was repeated today. And having a foot in both the infertility world and the adoption world, I have to admit, I feel oftentimes that I am standing on a railroad track and I see a train barreling down and I am screaming and yelling and saying, no, 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 stop, stop. And, and, and I'm, I'm not being heard because clearly the research in the last 30, 40, 50 years in adoption has shown that the, the seed planting is the, is the much preferred way to do it. You tell a child so that they never, they never know. If you ask most people who have been adopted now, not sadly, not all, but most who have been adopted uh, in the last, what, 20 years, so years, they don't. They don't know when they found out. They always knew. And and that is, and it becomes an easy, and it also allows what we tell parents through adoption is start when they're infants, because it's you're a little you're, you're awkward at first. You're not sure of the words and you're kind of stumbling a bit. So you're kind of practicing. They don't know. I mean, they're just, you know, if you're reading a book to them, they're chewing on it. They're not paying any attention to the words, but you're getting more comfortable. And then continue to add just the seed planting, just add a little more detail, a little more detail, and then follow the child's lead. And, and that seems to be, and yet I don't think that has been universally accepted nor in court courage even particularly in the uh, in the donor donor conception space and i don't understand it i don't understand why the infertility world has it's like we're trying to reinvent the wheel don't <laughs> the wheel <laughs> learn from the mistakes the adoption folks have made for gracious sakes anyway i throw that out there 
This show is brought to you by the support of Reproductive Medicines Associates of New York. They are one of the largest fertility practices in New York and one of the largest in the country. By combining the latest innovations in reproductive sciences with compassionate and customized treatment plans, RMA of New York is able to provide the very best possible care. Let's now talk about that because this goes into the, the awkwardness, as I was saying, it is, you know, you got to figure out words and, and some of the words can be make you feel less than. So what words do people use to describe the, the donor to the child? You know, my team and I have been trying to tease out and do some of these deep dives, Dawn, about some of that language. And again, it depends on if you're talking with a child who's of a young age, or if you're talking with, um, if you're just telling your child who's maybe around age 10, or if you're just starting that telling process um, and your child is an adolescent, say 14 or 15. So the language can uh, differ, but I would encourage parents to be as truthful as they can. And some of that also comes out of some of the work being done. And I want to also acknowledge the individuals who are donor-conceived adults, because we found from those individuals, they often provide a lot of guidance about how not to tell. <laughs> yes. It happened and resulted in some really trauma for the family, which is what I, and hopefully this podcast, are really trying to avoid because what I think, um, and, and just, just quickly, if I can divulge here for a moment, um, what my team and I are really trying to do in our work is we're trying to keep parents as healthy as possible, keep parent health healthy. Because we can see that in parents that struggle with telling, sometimes this causes a lot of stress and anxiety for parents, and that's not good for their health. Also, want to keep the children's health, to optimize that as much as we can. And children, uh, when they become adults, if they don't know that they were donor-conceived, their health care could be compromised. Another uh, outcome that we also want to look at in the work I'm doing is I want to optimize that parent-child relationship. Having children of my own, I understand how important that is. And I know for these families that I work with who have really on to many extremes and jumped over many hoops to have these children. These are precious children. And parents want to optimize that oh, all, all children are precious, I should say, but parents really want to optimize that mm-hmm. parent relationship. So that said, getting back to the language, um, what I would recommend is that, as you said, parents start early and just use simple language if their child is young and build on that language. I would caution parents because what we're learning too is that you want to be careful if you're talking about the donor, you may just call them a donor. That's often preferred by many parents. Be careful though, if you're using terms such as, and if if you don't know, if you're saying like a nice man or a nice woman, sometimes those can be a little bit tricky. You might choose instead a term like a special woman or a special man or a generous woman if they're generous in sharing their eggs. Um, Because what we've learned from the 
a donor conceived adults is that they may meet that person and perhaps they aren't as kind as your mother had originally told you when you were younger. So just being sensitive and aware and and telling the child what, what, what you do know, this is the information I know. know, I feel that this woman was very generous or this man was very generous or this couple was very generous in donating their embryo. But I think just to shape it um, in a way that it continues, it can continue to be true as the story grows and throughout that child's life. So I don't know if you want me to get a little more specific with some terms, and I appreciate you letting me answer kind of in a long way. Yeah. uh, Yes. Let's talk about. Well, first of all, is there what are is there a general storyline that parents use when disclosing donor conceptions to the child from a research standpoint have you seen that there's a method that either is preferable or is more common in how parents the story kind of the, the story that is told well what i can say i think there are some key elements so you definitely want to mention that it the donor and that there were some missing parts or parts that didn't work be it an egg, be it a sperm, be it an egg and sperm, or a a uterus where the baby grows. So I think these are kind of the key elements. Oftentimes, too, parents will say that there were some helpers. So, and those helpers are typically the the donor could be framed as a helper, but many parents, too, are then saying that they did seek like medical care. So usually referencing a doctor versus individuals at a fertility clinic. So I would say those are kind of the key components that I would encourage, at least in that basic telling, kind of those initial telling conversations. Mm -hmm. I think as has been said on your program before, and I would definitely support this, especially when I'm thinking about overall health of parents, children, and the parent-child relationship, is that this should not be... Um, a one-time telling process. The ideal situation is that this conversation takes place just as other conversations do between parents and their children. And I think the last piece I want to add, if this is helpful, I did say this on a segment where I was talking to nurses about how to educate parents. You want, as a parent, you want your child ideally to come to you with difficult questions, when, they, when they're old enough and need to have conversations about alcohol use, when they start driving, perhaps a birth control conversation, appropriate sexual conversations, you as the parent want your children to have those conversations, I would think. So this conversation about how your child came to be, to me, is, is part of a piece of like good parenting and and the conversations that you need to have with your child, if that helps frame it kind of in a slightly different way. Sometimes parents hear that and that can help them um, through the telling process. Have you found that one of the motivating factors to not tell is because the non-genetically connected parent feels that they will somehow be lesser than in the child's eyes? Yes. Oh, definitely. Definitely. I think it gets back to some of that grief that we talked about earlier. 
that kind of working through that grief and loss and coming to terms with that themselves. And I think it, I think that um, the non uh, genetic parent, if, if there is one in the family, I think these telling conversations, the parent really needs to be part of that. Um, if at all possible, perhaps not all of them as it unfolds, because we do see that at least in our current research that we're looking at, children tend to look toward the female figure in the family, the mother figure for this information. Uh, children seem to be a little bit more comfortable coming back to the mother um, and asking questions, not in every case, but it seems to fall on that kind of female figure in the family. Mm-hmm. Well, and it could also be that the female figure in the family is more willing to step up and have the conversation as well. Uh, That could be a possibility too. So I I think that oftentimes the the fear that is motivating parents to not tell or postpone telling, and the problem with postponing is it gets harder and harder. And so that's how we end up with families who think they were going to tell, but just never got around to it. I think one of the fears is that the child will will somehow feel, how will the child feel about donor conception? So what does the research that you've seen show about how donor conceived children feel about being donor, about donor conception? You know, some of the studies that we have that are coming out, and granted, we haven't um, looked, you know, at, at a, a huge amount of uh, donor conceived uh, children, more so at donor conceived adults. But when children find out early and from their parents, that puts them in in the best possible scenario for finding out. And those children tend to do uh, really well and eventually kind of accept how they came to be. It's, I think, children that or adults that find out kind of accidentally, you know, unintentionally in various different ways that seem to struggle and have more trauma, I think, associated with how they came to be than than others who have found out from their parents often early. And also, I would say, like, kind of involving in continuing to, to talk to children and tell children about how they came to be. For example, from our donor-conceived adults, we found out that some of them, for example, say things like, you know, my parents sat me down when I was 10 and they told me I was donor-conceived, say born from a donor sperm. But then my parents never, ever talked about it again. It was like never brought And, you know, the, as this child grew, they said, you know, I had all these questions. I kind of wondered about some things. Mm-hmm. It was taboo. And so it's not just, I think, telling, I guess that's what I'm trying to say. I think it's just trying to help parents understand it's it's not a one-time process. And it's to to continue to bring it up. And and some children, too, if I could just say quickly, some children will ask a lot of questions and are, you know, have families where it's very common to approach parents. But other children may be more introverted and may not ask. And that's where it's really helpful if, in those situations if parents can bring up things uh, like, you know, um, I'm noticing that you really like to play the piano. And you know what? I think the donor stated that they really enjoyed music and they were a musician. So kind of making some of those connections as the child develops puts mm-hmm. 
family in the best position for health. That makes sense. What about the role of children's books in helping parents and kids both normalize and open up the normalize the donor conception as well as open up the conversation? Well, what we know from talking with parents is many parents are using these children's books. It's actually a strategy in my current work where I'm trying to educate parents. It's definitely a strategy that I recommend. Mm-hmm. Uh, to use it because I think some of the parents or many of the parents do struggle with language, like, oh, how should I tell? And a lot of our parents are, are somewhat isolated. They may not have like a, 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 a donor sperm parent next door to them where they can kind of back some ideas around. So I do recommend, um, if at all possible, that parents obtain uh, some children's books, either through their library, if they can get them, or they can, uh, today, nowadays, you can order them on amazon.com, for example. Parents may might even want to order a few of them and uh, kind of decide uh, which one kind of resonates for them and their family and kind of put that in circulation, especially if their child is young. It helps parents too with that language exactly. conversation going. Now there is, if your child is a little bit older, for example, a uh, young adult age, there aren't a lot of books, but there's one offhand I would recommend and that's the Archie Nolan. Book. I don't know if you're familiar with say, that. Say that again, please. It's put out by the Donor Conception Network over in the UK. Uh-huh. I believe it's the title of it is something like Archie Nolan, Child Detective. Archie Nolan, Child Detective. Interesting. Yeah, my team and I actually read this book. We like to read the books to you know what's out there and available to parents. And I think uh, Archie is, uh, let me see, like he's about, uh, nine or 10 years old. He's like a twin, and he found out that he was like a donor conceived. Of course, his twin sister is all fine about it, and he's kind of struggling with it. And he writes about it in this book. And I think it's a nice book for parents that might want to, uh, they might want to read it themselves is what I would recommend. But if they like the book, then they might want to consider giving it to their child when their child is kind of around that age, especially if they haven't started those early conversations when their child was early, because it, it, it brings up some different points and, and uh, talking points that parents may want to have in those follow-up conversations. And even if they have talked to their child, it's still, it's a great way of, there aren't many, I'm glad to hear of this, because there aren't many books for older older children and, and tweens and adolescents. Mm-hmm, right. It's a good way of reintroducing and opening up the conversation again, because you're right. One of the tendencies is to have air quotes around the world. The, the conversation Mm -hmm. done it, checked it off the list. They're told don't ever have to raise it again. And that's, that's not how this works and not in a, not in the best scenario. So this would be a, an opportunity. One of the disadvantages of waiting to tell children is that is there aren't books and in, after a certain age, if you could read this book aloud with your child, some kids are receptive to that and some are not. Uh, it kind of depends on the how, if you've done that throughout, you know, continue to do read alouds. But anyway, it's I'm very glad to hear. I have not heard of this book, so I'm, I'm very glad. So what role do you think infertility professionals, especially nurses, can play in disclosure decisions for infertility patients who are using donor conception? 
I think they can play a huge role. I think, you know, nurses are the most trusted profession. There's many of us. And I know from uh, my clinical practice, I would have patients that were meeting with the doctor. The doctor may be recommending, you know, sperm donation or um, egg donation as a treatment. And then they would come back and see me and they would say, you know, Dr. So-and-so is recommending this, Patricia. What do you think? And also, if I use it, gosh, how am I going to tell my child or you know, how am I going to tell my family or you know, how's that going to unfold? So I think nurses are in a key position also because what we see in the research is sometimes parents need to process information over time. Sometimes you know from yourself when you are seeing a physician or a practitioner, you get information, but you may not hear it well, sometimes hearing it in a different way or another way, having time to process it is really helpful. So to me, this makes nurses and nurse practitioners in key education positions. And one of the first things that I would say that nurses working, for example, in fertility clinics or in pediatric clinics, and they uh, know that parents have used successfully a donor gamete, they may just want to assess where is the parent in that telling process. So you might just say something like, I see you've used um, donor sperm. Have you told your children or where are you kind of in that uh, process? Or if they're just uh, pregnant or early pregnancy, you know, kind of, are you, where are you in that process? Are you thinking about it? And kind of find out where the parents are, kind of what the parents are thinking. I think that's a great starting point. And then, as you mentioned, nurses are in the key role where we can add some strategies about telling, for example, you know, here, you know, many parents are using children's books. I did a talk recently with the nurses professional group um, at the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. And I actually recommended that nurses in fertility clinics consider getting some of these children's books and have them at their clinics so they can then show parents because these books have been evolving over the last several years and we've now gotten it. Uh, to where we have um, some books that are targeting like lesbian uh, couples or single moms or different ethnicities, uh, the different gangs. So to me, if nurses have these books available, just can kind of show parents and, and give parents an idea about what's out there and then allow parents to make their own decisions. Further, I think that they should buy some of these books and give it <laughs> as a present. There you go. I like that. Yes. Gotten pregnant. Yes. Here, congratulations. Here is a book. I think that's what they should do. Let me throw out. Yes. Creating a family has a lot of resources on talking with children about conception. You would get to it by our website, creatingafamily.org. Scroll down and then click on the big block for infertility. Click on that. That takes you to our infertility guide. Scroll down until the uh, after conception and click on talking with children about conception. There we have a list of suggested books of children conceived and we break it out through fertility treatment, sperm donation, egg donation, embryo donation, and surrogacy. And it's broken out by age of the child and we give a short review of the book. So you can find books in order to suggest there. We also have lots of other resources, tips, about talking with kids. Anyway, lots of things as well there at that website. Have in your research and when you're working with helping families, 
What do you suggest for nurses or anyone who's working with families to help families get over their hesitancy? Is there a script? Is there a particular book or just, are you more general suggesting that, uh, that makes sure they talk about missing pieces? You gave us the, uh, the, the criteria, things to focus on. Yeah, thanks for asking. I mean, the current work that we're doing, the uh, research study that's going on now is more of a deep dive, Dawn, into kind of teasing out some of those uh, pieces about the telling process, as well as strategies that parents can use. So we can offer several strategies, such as children's books. But there are other strategies as well. For example, parents have children that are a little bit older, say around 12. 13 years old, and they haven't told, but they're wanting to tell, we can use, uh, we talk about in our research, and we're looking at parents using like what we call a lean in strategy, where parents can kind of lean into a conversation. For example, on television, there might be a, a story about donor sperm or something that's in the news, and parents can then use that to lead, to kind of start a conversation with their child, such as you know, there's been something, there's been some information that, for example, your father and I want to share with you. We now think you're old enough to understand. So we, you know, we'd like to share this information with you. So kind of leaning into conversations um, is another strategy, especially for older families. Yeah, that makes sense. One of the challenges I would think to that approach is there aren't a lot of stories or the stories that it seems like on the news or whatever, there, there might be movies, but there aren't a lot. And it's oftentimes the stories that are on the news are somebody having found out late in life and or not late, later in life, you know, finding out. And that may not be the most productive. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's right. It, or something, you know, sometimes you'll see on the news that, you know, a sperm donor has, you know, so many offspring. So I know. Yeah, leading into that conversation is a bit difficult, it feels. Yes, but I think I think if it helps prompt those parents to sure. lean into that conversation, I think then, you know, then it's then it's a good thing. Yeah. It, it, movies might be where you if there could be a movie that would have something, you know, where there would be or a book or something like that that would have a slightly more positive spin. You you may want thinking of this what what might work for many parents too, and what we're seeing is that if there's a movie on infertility, not perhaps necessarily that a donor gamete or donor embryo is used, but just to kind of put into context how you know parents were struggling with infertility and they went right. to and this is what they did. Parents can then build and lean in on that information that I think makes a kind of a nice background for helping their children understand and parents can then say if it's true you know i wasn't even sure how to tell you you know or it it was it was i was sad that when i found out that i was infertile but i'm so happy that we were able to have you and this is our family's story i think also framing it from the point of this is our family story mm-hmm. versus this is our you know the child's story um, is, it, is another way, another strategy that can be very helpful to parents. 
That makes really good sense as well. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Patricia Hirschberger, for being with us today to talk about disclosing donor conception or surrogacy to our kids. I truly appreciate it. 